This past week, clergy from our diocese, the Diocese of St. Anthony, we met for our annual convocation in Nashville, Tennessee. Father Preston Sharp did an amazing job hosting us all and planning the event. Several of you were able to make it, which was a joy. And in some ways, I'm kind of writing one of those like post-church camp buzzes, you know, I've just... <laughs> Uh, should have worn a veil today so you couldn't see the fading glory or something. <laughs> Last night, Bishop Ed asked me what the texts were for today. And when I told him, it's the moment when Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. He said, oh yeah, that's my favorite marriage sermon. Uh, <laughs> it's a sermon I would absolutely love to hear if you want to come give it today. This isn't a sermon about marriage, at least I don't think it is. This is, I think, a sermon about what it is to be a disciple. And surprise, it might not be what you think it is. When we think about the challenges facing discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, we have to think about some of the other opposing forces or the things that tend to, to draw us away, some of the off-ramps that are available to us, off-ramps from discipleship. One of the things that sociologists have recognized as a pattern over the last hundred years or so is what they call seduction at scale. Seduction at scale. It's this idea that the challenges that we face and that our children face aren't dealing with everything that we can't have, but that we have to make sense of everything that we can have at mass scale. So think about, you know, a time when there was a little betting shop on the corner with a handful of guys with their newspapers who were super excited about horse races. To now, there's a whole generation of people with betting apps on their phones and in their pockets. Think about the endless supply of, of shows and movies and streaming, things that are accessible to us 24-7. A whole generation of people with this kind of access to everything they could possibly want. Mass consumerism. Again, not forcing us to deal with what we can't have, with what's being kept from us, but how to make sense of a world where everything that we can have is right in front of us all the time. And it's left us with what, again, sociologists call this seduction at scale. And this is a problem, not because having options is bad, but that this is actually a kind of oppression that we face, that we don't always understand or sense as being oppression. But we're, it's confusing because we're not always oppressed with, with a big no, with a big kind of repression, enforcing what it is you can and cannot do. But we are oppressed with this kind of big yes, by being offered everything that we want, whenever we want it. This becomes a roadblock to discipleship or at least an opposing force to discipleship because Jesus is the one who calls us, as we heard today, to take up our cross and our arms can only be so full. Seduction at scale is essentially a means to distract us, not in the sense of manipulating us or being sneaky, but in the sense of getting your mind off things. It comes to us as this distraction that we don't have to actually face and deal with so much of what is right in front of us. So much of the boredom 
of our day-to-day living. (laughs) The pain that we experience, the pain that we experience, but also that other people around the world are always experiencing all the time. And at the end of the day, we're just so tired. We're facing so much uncertainty. There's so much pain in the world that the thing it feels like we need, the thing that we feel like is going to actually give us what we want is to just get our mind off things for a minute. Our other gospel reading for today takes us back to the story of the transfiguration. And it's this moment when Jesus is just standing there before Peter, James, and John, just beaming with the glory of God, clothes and all. Bishop Chris told us this past week that transfiguration happens at the point where deep study, deep prayer, and deep sorrow meet. Sorrow, he said, is that suffering, the pain that you are experiencing taken to heart. Suffering doesn't teach us anything in and of itself, but suffering is is the setting, it's the context where the Spirit can do the work of teaching us. The suffering that we experience doesn't teach us anything. Christ present to us in our suffering is the one who teaches us. And we know that Christ is present in our suffering because Christ himself suffered. And at the very heart of the Christian tradition, what it means to be a disciple is to let Jesus come to us, the one that we learn from, the one who teaches us sorrow instead of suffering. Again, sorrow is that taking to heart of the suffering that you're experiencing, not just your suffering, but the suffering of others as well. Lent is such an odd time because it's a season where we almost self-inflict a kind of suffering. And what's worse is that we we self-inflict a kind of suffering that we hope and trust leads to sorrow. The hope is that isn't that we just give up lunch a few days a week so that we feel hungry. That's just suffering. Jesus doesn't want that for you. Jesus doesn't want you to just suffer. The hope is that we give up lunch a few times a week so that we experience the hunger of the truly hungry. The hope is that we can redirect that hunger into a hunger for God, a hunger for justice, a hunger for peace. That is what it is to sorrow, to let our suffering be taken to heart. And that is the Lenten journey. To be a disciple is to join Jesus in this journey of sorrow. Today we heard Jesus rebuke to Peter, get behind me, Satan. But there are some things happening in this scene, some details that I think if we're not careful, we'll just pass by them without letting them touch us. First, notice Jesus tells Peter to get behind him. But what's the very next thing that Jesus does? Do you remember? Jesus turns around. Jesus turns to the other disciples. Jesus tells Peter to get behind him and then he turns. This was the first, this week, (laughs) the first time I saw this. I'm not sure, uh, well, I'm positive. Some of you noticed it before I did. The Jesus rebuke of Peter is not just a kind of sending away. It's not just 
getting him out of the way so that Jesus can get on with the business that he has to take care of. Jesus doesn't tell Peter to get behind me as, as a brush off or in any way as a, a writing off of Peter. In this moment, Jesus' word and his action are one. He simultaneously tells Peter to get behind him and then he turns to place Peter in the exact place that he needs to be. Jesus turns to the rest of them, to the crowd and to the disciples and he says to them, that if anyone wishes to be his disciple, deny themselves, take up their cross and get behind me. Not to be that guy today, but there is a weird translation note to point out here. In the translation that we heard, Jesus says, if anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. We hear it as the same word, followers and follow. But originally that word is two different words. It's literally translated, if anyone wants to come behind me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and get behind me. But who is behind Jesus? Peter. Jesus has already turned and put Peter in the place where he's telling his other disciples, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you've got to get behind this guy. This is how we should hear every word from Jesus, every rebuke from Jesus. So long as it's coming from him, he will do the work of putting you exactly where you need to be. Not as a brush off, not to put you in your place, but to put you in the place where you most need to be, which is right behind Jesus. Augustine said this, he said, how hard and painful does this appear? But what he commands is neither hard nor painful when he himself helps us in such a way so that the very thing he requires of us may be accomplished. For whatever seems hard and what is enjoined, love makes easy. This was not an easy thing for Peter to hear these words from Jesus, get behind me. And Jesus knows this and Jesus loves Peter. So in speaking this word of rebuke to him, Jesus does the work for him. Get behind me. And he turns to the disciples. Now that might sound like good news, but remember where Jesus is going. Before you get excited about where Jesus is putting you and that he's doing all the work to put you in that place, remember Jesus is turning his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus is turning toward great suffering, toward great betrayal. But this is the place Jesus wants us with him. One of the unintended themes of this convocation this past week was that Jesus doesn't want us as servants. Jesus doesn't want servants. Jesus wants friends. Jesus is the one who takes on the sorrows of the world, of the whole world. And what he wants from us, what he, what he needs from us is to be with him, to comfort him while he bears our pain. 
In that way, we can hear this rebuke of get behind me as a call, as an invitation. Back me up here. In the Old Testament reading for today, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. We tend to read walk before me as a kind of condition of the covenant that God is making with Abram. Walk before me, Abraham. Let me observe you. Let's see if you've got the goods, if you can cut it, if you've got what it takes to carry this burden. But Ellen Davis, a professor at Duke University, she suggests that rather than a kind of magisterial command, rather than a dictating order, walk before me really means be always with me. Think about that. In the moment when God is first appearing to Abraham, bringing him this impossible promise of bearing children, becoming a great nation, a nation that will bless the nations of the world, God's call to him is be with me. Stay with me always. What's more, the call to be blameless, or some other translations say wholehearted, means to be wholly there for me, fully there for me. So we could read this verse this way. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty, be with me always and be wholly there for me. Think of that, God Almighty, ready to go and do great and marvelous things for Abram, the impossible miracle of giving him children, giving him a future, giving him a people, a promise. What does he want in return? Be with me. Be there for me. Get behind me. Stay with me always. One of the ways that we've so often talked about Lent is as a season where we make room for God. We make room by getting rid of some of the, the junk and the clutter of our lives. And this is helpful. But recently I've been thinking about how in this season where we make room for God, we're reminded that God has made room for us. That God has invited us into the roominess of his own life. And he invites us, welcomes us, nudges us into that space in the same way he invited Abraham to be with me always, to be there for me. In the same way, Jesus placed Peter behind him as the first of his followers, the first of his disciples. In this season, we are invited to come close to Jesus. We're invited to come close into that space that he has prepared for us. As much as we focus on how much Christ loves us and wants to be with us, the opposite is just as true. Christ wants us to be with him. One of my practices, my prayers for this season of Lent is to pause before I sit down to work, before I rush out the door to get to a meeting and I just get still and say, Jesus, I am here for you. 
I am here for you. And when we come to this table, when we come with our hands open, our prayer can be, Jesus, I am here for you because that's exactly what we receive. The body and blood of Christ brought to our own hands. And as we receive him, as he comes close to us and as we come close to him, we will learn not how to suffer, but how to enter into sorrow in ways that are faithful, in ways that are life-giving and in ways that bring us close to the sacred heart of Jesus. Amen.